Welcome to Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talked to director Amanda McKaylee. Her most recent film, Vegas Baby, looks at a Las Vegas fertility clinic and its contest for free IVF treatment. IVF is very expensive, and there are no guarantees. It's like a slot machine. The more dollars you put in doesn't necessarily mean the more likely you are to hit. Well, you've heard of contests to win a cruise or an iPad, but have you ever heard of winning a free baby? The Share Institute in Las Vegas has a national contest. a video contest. Offering free in vitro treatments to one lucky couple. In Vegas Baby, Amanda follows three sets of wannabe parents who enter the contest. We watch over a year as they pursue their dreams of having a baby with different results. You might question their strategies, but you can't doubt their passion to be parents. Amanda works as both a director and as a camera person. Her cinematography credits include Lauren Greenfield's film Thin about young women with eating disorders. As a director, Amanda made the documentary Double Dare about female stunt women and La Corona about a beauty pageant held at a Colombian women's prison. La Corona was nominated for an Academy Award. Amanda's films often put women at the center. Not to say that I'm only interested in women's stories, but 100% is something that's near and dear to my heart and has been a conscious effort to explore how women navigate a male-dominated world. Amanda came to the story of Vegas Baby from her personal experience that she describes. I sat down with her in New York City last June. She remembers advice she took early in her career from Werner Herzog. I was a student at the Telluride Film Festival student program, so I was probably a sophomore in college. I was making my very first film, Wide-Eyed, and um, he he was a guest at the festival and there was a panel discussion and someone raised their hand and said, Mr. Herzog, Mr. Herzog, what's your advice to young filmmakers? Should we go to graduate school or should we learn on the job? And he just did it in his Werner way, kind of thought for a minute and furrowed his brow and he said, play contact sports. (laughs) And I thought, oh, here's a man that understands me because I, um, at that time and for many years of my life had sort of a dual life um, as as an athlete and as a filmmaker, um, I played women's rugby. And so it was, it was a sign from the gods that my life choices were, were correct, which of course is a joke. But, um, but no, I, you know, it's funny, the, the sports filmmaking analogy for me is, is very on point. Um, I do feel like documentaries are a contact sport, and mostly because you hit the ground hard sometimes and it's hard to get back up. And that's one of the things that rugby taught me is like, if you can just get back on your feet, typically something will happen. It's not always great, but lying down doesn't do you much good. And you can't do anything lying down. In, in your filmmaking career, besides directing and producing, you also have sometimes uh, been a camera person for, for other people. And, and you're a camera person on most of your own uh, filmmaking. Can you talk about your choice of gravitating to the camera? Yeah, I mean, I I began in still photography as a as a young woman. Um, I was the photo editor of my high school newspaper, 
Um, we had a pretty hardcore newspaper at Newton North High School in the Boston area. Um, our our editor-in-chief or faculty advisor was um, a chain-smoking New Yorker who used to work at um, one of the big papers here in Manhattan. So she ran it like a real paper, you know. I mean, she literally was chain-smoking in the high school, you know. It was like, that doesn't happen anymore. God bless the 80s, you know. Um, and so it was a real, I really cut my teeth there, and I learned how to navigate my social world th- with a camera. And that was how I coped with being an awkward teenager. Um, I was able to go into the football locker room. I was able to go into the teacher's lounge. I could go into all these spaces that otherwise I would have gotten my ass kicked or gotten in trouble. And I thought that was pretty cool. And um, that was how I started to understand the world. So I think when I decided I wanted to make films, um, it was a natural choice to have, be sort of a camera-centric person. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about uh, Vegas Baby. Um, wh- what drew you to this topic in the first place? It's personal reasons, as I understand it. Yes. Um, I mean, I guess all all my films stem in some way from some personal interest that I have. It's just that my interests have evolved over time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, And this one, unfortunately, came from not such a great thing that happened in my life. So uh, my husband and I decided later in life to try to have a family. Um, We got got married later in life, too. I think the the first challenge for me as an independent filmmaker was, can I even have a relationship? (laughs) Because that part was hard enough. And then once I kind of embraced that fact of like, no, I I don't actually want to be like Amanda versus the world. I would like to to be with this person. And I was like, oh, doing, doing, I want to have a family. And this hit me at like 38. Um, so I don't know. I think I had this very kind of um, post-feminist, independent woman problem that I really thought my career was the main thing and that I could decide later. And I didn't think there was really a problem with that. And I was just ill-informed. Now, I mean, I should say that inside the filmmaking circles that I move, that's a kind of normal trajectory. I mean, amongst my peers of documentary filmmakers in New York City, like anyone who had kids in their early 30s, that was The exception. Sure. Yeah. The circles that we move in, that's pretty normal. And I think that was part of what normalized it for me. Um, I also had, you know, two friends who had done IVF and gotten pregnant at 40 so I thought, well, worst case scenario, if something goes wrong, I can do that. And I don't think I even really thought I would do that. But I kind of in the back of my mind, like, oh, well, if that's the worst case scenario, that's... Someone I under- else has done it. I understand that. Yeah. No. Um, but I also just, I just don't think anyone thinks they'll have to do that. Or also, I thought maybe I wouldn't be that, quote unquote, desperate. <laughs> um, I told myself, when Eric and I decided to get married, I told myself, well, we'll pull the goalie mm-hmm. and we'll see what happens. And I told myself, whatever happens, happens. If it doesn't happen, I'll be okay. And if it does, great. That's what I told myself. But when I really got down to brass tacks and after six months and it didn't work and we got a diagnosis, at the time the diagnosis was male factor infertility, which was a huge shock to us. Um, You know, he had spent his whole life incredibly proud. He never got anyone pregnant and I had never gotten (laughs) pregnant. We both were so responsible. Um, And then all of a sudden come to find we had this sort of medical problem, this incredibly low sperm count that they couldn't explain. And 
And then all of a sudden I was like, oh shit, I mean, like it can't happen at all. And they were like, no, this will never, like physiologically, this this really can't happen, especially at your age. They were like, you're looking pretty good for your age, but still the only way you guys can get pregnant is through IVF. Um, so that was just a real shocker to us. And um, So you were going through this personal experience of, uh, of IVF and when did that click for you? That, to become a film? Yeah. Um, it was at, well, so we did this round. We spent our, we emptied our savings account to do this round of IVF and I thought it would work and it didn't. Um, it failed miserably. And I sat there just trying to make sense of that and also just trying to remember what I thought I knew or what information I thought I had. And I just felt so ignorant. And like you say, I mean, I certainly, other people that I know had gone through this, but no one had ever really talked about it. So I thought, well, this is something that they're need. And I thought I hadn't really seen a documentary about this subject matter. So it seemed to me to be kind of ripe for investigation and exploration. But I also was trying to wrap my head around, like, how do you make that cinematic? Or how do you make that, mm. you know, who wants to turn on a movie about infertility? Um, so I was researching financing options for our second round of IVF, which I really thought we would never do. And uh, that's when I came across an article in the New York Times about how clinics were having contests. Do you think you could build your IVF treatment into your budget for a film? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, you know what, Tom? That's a brilliant idea. Why didn't I think of that? But anyway, so that's what that's what triggered the idea for the film. I thought, well, this is preposterous and uh, bizarre, but I also kind of get why people would feel that desire to the extent that they would do something so extreme. So let's just lay this out. There, there is this clinic in Las Vegas that at the time was holding a contest and people would send in their uh, video uh, reels giving testimony as to why they were most deserving of uh, of getting a free round of uh, of IVF treatment. That's right. They're competing for, for a cycle, which doesn't guarantee a baby. Um, and yeah, it's a video contest. So, uh, so there's something visual. It's also controversial. It's also full of very raw uh, emotions. Um, and I wonder what you were looking for in following these other people. Well, I think on a practical level, I was looking for diversity because I think even for myself, I had this stereotype of what a infertility patient looked like or what an IVF patient looked like. You know, I pictured overeducated, older, coastal career woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and not without some judgment, you know, which is probably sort of like a self-hatred thing too. But, you know, I I think that that sort of, I just pictured affluent white women. Um, and when I saw the entries for the contest, I was just blown away by how many different kinds of people were seeking out this service um, and unable to afford it. A lot of them had mortgaged their homes, had pushed themselves to desperate lengths to try to pursue this. And from all different faiths, I mean, they were like Muslim, Catholic, uh, black, white, Latino. And and I just, it just really just struck me as one of those unique opportunities to see kind of a slice of life of America that had I chosen to go to one clinic and embed myself there, I would never have gotten that because the just the nature of this contest was national and this guy had a national has a national chain 
Um, so it really, it really gave me an opportunity to see people from all different walks of life. In Vegas, baby, the characters range from a working-class couple in the Midwest to a Lady Gaga impersonator in New York City. They are all investing their faith into IVF. Those who don't win, they get loans, they max credit cards, they borrow money from family. We're already in debt. Do we bankrupt this family to try to fulfill this dream? I just hope everything works out. But whatever happens, we're in this together. Me being able to be public about this gives meaning and purpose to the pain that I've gone through. I've heard her say, what's the point of being married if you can't have kids? Boy, that's sure, that's sure stuck here. We can't guarantee a baby, nobody can. But one chance is certainly better than no chance. And you're my man. I'm your man. With God in you. Not having control over your reproduction is raw pain, emotional pain. Oh, we waited so long for you. Maybe we're supposed to have it because we're supposed to have that drive to procreate. Anytime you're filming with um, a documentary, there's sensitive issues because by nature you want to be there in people's most intense parts of their life. Um, And somehow in this film that feels amplified because there's so many hopes uh, and years of hopes uh, riding on these moments of fate as to whether or not they're uh, pregnancy is going to take or uh, or not. I, did this feel different than than other films uh, for the kind of sensitivity around who you were filming? I think it felt different in the edit room. I feel we had to really be careful to not um, get too maudlin or veer into the sort of exploitative side, and that's sort of up to the viewer. Uh, how we did with that balancing act. Um, uh, we were working really hard not to just point fingers at a bad guy and let let there be complexities and nuances and um, ranges of empathy and allow those to happen. Um, but I think in terms of the intimate access, it always feels like a privilege and a very... I feel like we're always riding the line of being too close because otherwise we wouldn't get the good stuff. And I don't think that actually changes from film to film in a sense. Like I feel like if I'm really doing my job, I'm always teetering on the edge of, ooh, am I asking too much or is this too close? Whether it's about stunt women or rodeo people or people trying to get pregnant, I think the content of what these people were going through was certainly more emotionally charged, but it's still the same job. Does that make sense? So in a way, you want to be operating in the zone of discomfort. If you're not in that zone, maybe you're not doing your job well enough. Yeah, not on a daily basis, but once in a while, the discomfort is a part of it. And I I mean, the important thing for me is just I really have to remember not to take it personal when, when people you know, kick me out or freak out. And and certainly on this film, we had some that were more dramatic than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I got locked out from at least one couple's life for quite some time, and I just had to be very zen about it and say, hopefully they'll come around again. 
Um, and I guess that's what I've gotten better at as I've gotten older. Um, partly just from the challenges of documentary filmmaking, the challenges of what my husband and I have been going through the last five years. Um, I've learned how to meditate and I bring that to almost every experience of just like, all I can do is breathe. I can't control this situation. That sounds like another version of uh, getting up after you've been knocked over. Well, yeah, because I can't play rugby anymore. I've had three knee reconstructions. So Werner Herzog's theory didn't, uh, it was not a sustainable theory. (laughs) So I've replaced uh, contact sports with Buddhist meditation. and one thing that really comes through watching this film as a viewer is you you feel your own judgments uh, rising to the surface. And I wonder how you navigated that in constructing these stories, knowing that you're putting these people's lives out there, something very sensitive for them, and something that now an audience is going to consume and judge. In terms of judgments, the biggest one, of course, in the film is the contest. You know, as a filmmaker, what stance do I take on the contest? And I made a choice not to make an anti-contest film um, because it just wasn't that interesting to me. Um, What was more interesting to me is like, well, why is there a contest and why are these people dying to do this? What is it about our culture that allows this kind of thing to flourish? Because it's not just this one place. There's there was just an article in The New York Times a couple months ago but a clinic in New York that's having raffles. So these are still happening. This is a this is a phenomenon. This is something in the zeitgeist. It's not isolated to this one exactly. Vegas clinic. Exactly. It speaks to a kind of cuckoo thing that's happening in our healthcare and in our culture in terms of women delaying having babies and celebrities, you know, at being kind of out in front with this, you know. In their late 40s, celebrities having twins and some of them not even admitting how they did that and that creates this sort of have and have nots. Um, culture. Um, But I think in terms of judgment around the contest itself, that ethical question of like, should this even be happening? It really reminded me of of, um, two other films. One was one that I worked on, the very first film I worked on for hire, which was Alison Berg's Witches in Exile. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this was Alison's film, but I was very much a part of the the execution. And uh, it was about women who'd been accused of witchcraft in Ghana who were exiled to these witch camps. So all the NGOs and all of the do-gooder liberals, rightly so, thought, well, this is ridiculous. They should shut the witch camps down. And we flew to Ghana to go to the witch camps and try to understand this. And of course, the logical thing is to think, well, the witch camps are bad. This is a bad thing. Why would you banish a woman to a witch camp? But you get their boots on the ground and you realize, oh, it's much more complicated than that. And the witch camps are actually a safe haven for these women, they like it there. They don't want to go home to their their other their home village because they would be stoned to death there. So you can't just say shut the witch camps down. That doesn't work. Similarly, you can't say stop the contest because in a in a way it's a bizarre parallel. But the contest is sort of a safe haven for these people because there's something crazy going on in the culture. And as human beings, we come up with crazy solutions to these problems, similar to the beauty pageant in La Corona. As a feminist, I thought, well, this is these poor women. I can't believe this is how they're expressing themselves. This was at a a Colombian women's prison. Uh, That's right. They have a beauty contest. Yeah, a a beauty contest in a prison. So I think sometimes our first judgments about something like that, and I'm drawn to these extreme uh, sort of catalysts for story. 
our first reaction is, well, this is bad, it should be stopped, or this is preposterous, it's wrong. But then you get there and you realize it's much more than that. I want to thank Amanda McKaylee for speaking with me. Her film Vegas Baby is now available on Netflix and other platforms. After many years of waiting, she became a parent herself last December. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA Social Documentary Program. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound mixer Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.